0: let me just say i want to just extend my gratitude for you and your family perhaps making our church a part of your weekend here this morning i know that you could be doing any number of things talking about how crazy it was that the ravens lost to the titans uh, over coffee or whatever it or sleeping in perhaps Uh, but you're here and just want to say thank you for being a part of our worship service this morning for some of you Um, One of the commitments that you may have made sort of in the new year has been to be a part of a church and a a sort of faith community, and you're doing it, and you're two for two. You know, you had one Sunday last week, and you're there, and you have this Sunday, and you're here again. Like, good job. Keep it up. Do three for three next week. It'll be awesome, but we appreciate you making that decision. We're just a church, right? Focus us a little bit this morning. Remind us of some of the basics. We're a church that is seeking to introduce people to Jesus while we learn to live and love like him. And it is in our gathering together that we are recognizing and and sort of becoming aware of the ways that this might happen in our church. We are just ordinary folks with a variety of life experiences who stand at a variety of life stages. But one thing that all of us in this congregation have in common, right, is that none of us are perfect people as we pursue Jesus. There are no perfect people behind this Pulpit, if you will, uh, there are no, there's one perfect person, actually. She's sitting right here in the front row, but she's the only one. Um, but there are no perfect people sitting in the pews, right? But sort of amidst our imperfections as a people, what we have discovered and found is that there is a perfect and great and extraordinary God who continues to meet with us and promises to be with us in our current life situations and stages. And in fact, Christmas is about that very reality, That there is a God who loves us, who is for us and not against us, who wants to be with people, who wants to allow us and empower us to live the lives that he created us to live. And we celebrate that. I just want to remind us of these basic things of why we gather every Sunday morning in worship. And while Christmas is a very well-known part of the Christian calendar, one of the lesser-known parts of the Christian calendar is known as a season of epiphany. Like Christmas, epiphany is both a day and a season. The day is every year on January 6th, I'm sure last Monday you were all celebrating epiphany. Uh, It was a joyous occasion, nobody celebrates epiphany, maybe we will next year, but. The season of epiphany though, it lasts between January 6th all the way through Ash Wednesday You see, during this season of the Christian calendar, the church has sort of dedicated themselves to reflecting and unearthing who this one is that came into the world. That is, what is this identity of Jesus? Who is he and what is he about? You see, as familiar as some of us may think that we are with Jesus, Epiphany reminds us that we never quite have Jesus nailed down completely. Like a husband or a wife who continues to increase their knowledge and familiarity familiarity about their spouse even after decades and decades of being together, so too the church takes intentional time every year to reflect on the person of Jesus during the season of epiphany. What was he about? What was Jesus really about? His life, mission, death, and resurrection, what does that mean for us in new ways in this year? And so Jesus is the focal point of our faith, and he will be the focal point of our Sunday morning sermons for the next several weeks together. We've titled the sermon series for these weeks um, as I Am, Jesus in His Own Words. And in it, we're gonna be exploring these seven I am statements of Jesus in John's gospel. You see, John is one of the four gospels that we have in our Bibles. The gospels just tell the story of the life of Jesus. And John, for those who are unaware, is the weirdest of all of the Gospels. It is strange, it is so different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And while all the Gospels have these distinctive features about them, one that's really distinctive in its language in John, or one of the features that's distinctive in John's Gospel are these seven statements where Jesus reveals his identity to his disciples. These seven statements are popularly known as the I am statements, and you probably know many of these. I think I have the seven up on the screen here for you, but the seven I am statements that we're going to be exploring together are these I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door. That was very direct and to the point. I am the resurrection and the life, I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That counts as one, not three. And then I am the vine. And so some of these might be familiar. And hopefully in our sermon series, we'll be unpacking not just that these are nice metaphors, but they're actually rooted in the scriptures and they're rooted in the story of God's people. And so we're going to jump into our first statement this morning, thinking about what it means that Jesus reveals himself as the bread of life. We'll be reading from John chapter 6, verses 24 through 35. John writes these words to us. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. Total sign note. I was reading through John's Gospel this week, and this idea of seeking just stood out to me. This is what people are doing all throughout John's Gospels. They're seeking, they're seeking, they're seeking. And every time that word popped up, it just kind of struck me. These people are in search, they're seeking Jesus. But when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered very Truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Another big theme of John's gospel, believe, believe, believe. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Father, our longing and our desire is that somehow through this text, through this sermon, That we would see Jesus, that we would have increased clarity on his identity and the implications that that has for us today. So give us ears to hear, we pray. Amen. For those who are unaware, uh, Paige, my wife, is 26 weeks pregnant. We're almost done. And by we, I mean she is almost done. (laughs) She just said exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And we will be meeting our baby girl in just a short few months. But keep Paige and our daughter in your prayers as we approach the home stretch of pregnancy. I don't know what it's like to be pregnant. I never know. I don't never want to know what it's like to be pregnant, but I know it's not easy. I. Yeah, after watching your wife go through pregnancy, just so much more respect just for all the women. You're like, well, you guys are way tougher than anything I've ever seen in my life. This is amazing. But it's crazy to think that we'll be doubling the number of small children in our family this year. Which is a crazy thing, like, when you really sit back and think about it. Doubling the amount of anything that you have in your life is a crazy concept. Imagine doubling your money. Yes, that would be awesome, but it'd be crazy, right? Doubling the amount of clothes that you have or doubling the amount of jobs that you hold, doubling the number of diapers you have to change. This is how I interpret doubling the amount of kids that we have potty trained before the baby comes. Hopefully, pray for us in that venture as well. But one of the things that I've been curious about as we sort of approach doubling the number of children that are gonna be in our family is what will the personality of the second child be? I've had enough conversations with parents who are far more experienced than myself but I know that I ought not to expect that this child is going to be exactly like our first child like Levi and so what are we supposed to expect with this second one see approaching this child with already having been a parent is both a helpful thing and potentially problematic reality it's quite an ironic thing that the experience becomes potentially the challenge but also a helpful experience. See, it's helpful in knowing how we might handle logistics like night feedings. It's helpful to know or to already know how to swaddle a baby. I had no clue that swaddling was a thing and that you had to do it a certain way and the little baby burrito thing. Like I had no clue how any of that really worked until the hospital. It's like baby boot camp, like whatever. <laughs> But it's also being a parent already is potentially problematic, and that we might have an inclination or temptation to think and to teach and communicate the same way with the second child as we did with the first child. Well, this worked with Levi. Certainly, this will work with this second one. See, it's potentially problematic if we try to make this second child to be like Levi. Right Or expect them to be like Levi in some ways. Or think that we can have a relationship with a second one that's the same as uh, Levi. See, our familiarity with parenting is potentially a strength or potentially a problem, depending on how we navigate that. And because at the end of the day, our longing is that this child of ours will become all that she is to be, I'm a little nervous about this reality. We don't want her to be anything other than who God created her to be, but our familiarity will need to be managed if this is going to become a reality in our lives. You see, our familiarity with things can often impair our ability to let people be who they are. This isn't just true of parents when it comes to their children. It can be true of junior high and high school students I imagine most of them do not like the sort of term that throws them into this generic category of young person or young people, as if the phrase held all of their unique personality and contribution that they can offer in the world. Oh, I know exactly the kind of person you are, right? What about this one? Republicans, right? We throw that word out there. Oh, I know exactly the kind of person that you are if you're a Republican, right? Right? Democrat, oh, tell me nothing more. I've got you all pinned down because I have this category in which I'm familiar with and I just impose all of those things on you. And the list goes on and on for the types of people that we sort of are familiar with, but this becomes a hindrance. What are lawyers like, right? (laughs) What are police officers like? What are stay-at-home parents like? you go down the list of roles that we play and our familiarity can begin to box people into some sort of way of being in the world and we completely miss who people actually are. You see, so too oftentimes, rather than encounter people as who they are, letting them be who they are, our presumed familiarity with a the role they have or a position they maintain shapes our perceptions and expectations of them oftentimes causing us to miss this person who is standing right in front of us. And there may be no more devastating person to do this with than with Jesus. And this is exactly what we see going on in our text this morning. There are people who are familiar with the scriptures, they're familiar with the categories, they're familiar with the labels, they're familiar with these notions of prophet, savior, lord, and king. And this very familiar familiarity blinds them from actually seeing Jesus for who he actually is they miss him because they don't get it they're living in their boxes but there are these two contextual elements that are critical for our understanding of the conversation that we just read between this crowd of people and Jesus the first is that the conversation between Jesus and the crowd is set within the context of a Passover celebration if you're in your Bibles, you can move to the beginning of John's gospel, to chapter 6 there, and you discover that we're in the middle of this celebration of Passover. Passover was and continues to be an annual celebration in which the Jewish people celebrated God freeing the Israelites from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And once freed from their enslavement in Egypt, the Israelites journeyed into the wilderness in pursuit of of the promised land, sort of modern day Israel-Palestine area. But there's one problem after God frees him from slavery is that in this journey towards the promised land, there isn't, enough of, there isn't enough food in the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land to sustain an entire nation of people for that journey. That is, they had nothing to eat. Once they got out of slavery, they're out in the, the de- desert thinking like, well, what do we eat? What do we drink? What do we do? What's going on? And Just as the people begin to grumble about this reality, God miraculously provides for them. Each and every morning of their journey, God provides bread from heaven. Every morning, God would provide them just enough bread to sustain them for their journey that day. And this leads to the second critical contextual element for our understanding of this conversation between Jesus and the crowd this morning. That conversation took place the day after the feeding of the 5,000. The only miracle I think that occurs in all four gospels in this way. But in that event, Jesus and a crowd of people are out in the wilderness, incidentally. And Jesus provides miraculously enough food for the entire crowd to eat that day by using just five loaves of bread and two fish. He feeds thousands of people in the wilderness miraculously with bread From heaven. Do you see the connection that John is trying to make to this Passover story from Exodus 16? You see, the Passover story was familiar to these people. The story of miraculous bread from heaven was familiar with them. And these were the stories that represented freedom and provision. And as the crowd begins to connect the dots between these familiar stories and the previous day's experience, they realize that this Jesus guy is a big deal. That Jesus is this long-awaited prophet that they had been waiting for for centuries. You see, in the first century in which Jesus lived, Israel was occupied by a foreign government and military known as the Roman Empire. They did not like These people. Imagine just a foreign government coming and occupying your land. Can you imagine how that might feel? And so the Romans were perceived by the Jews as this oppressive presence in their nation and in their land. And the Jewish people had long been awaiting a prophet like Moses who would free them from this oppressive rule of the Romans. And this feeding, this miracle, was a sign that Jesus was that prophet that Jesus was that Messiah, that Jesus was that Savior who had come into the world to do the very thing that they were hoping and expecting. So they're excited. They start pursuing Jesus, trying to find out what is this guy all about because this is the one that we've been waiting for. But these are the people that Jesus rebuffs in our passage this morning. When the crowd finally finds Jesus the next day, Jesus says to them, you are looking for me for all of the wrong reasons. You're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill, which is a peculiar thing for Jesus to say to people who are like all about him in the moment, right? Can you imagine like everyone's like, hey, do this thing, we're so excited for you, and you're like, whoa, 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 get out of here, get out of here, I don't like you, That right? This is not how we normally respond to people who are trying to be in relationship with us. But Jesus' response does make sense when we realize the crowd who witnessed that feeding of the 5,000 were only a moment away from making him a king. We see in verse 15 of chapter six these words. Jesus, knowing that they intended, the crowd intended to come and make him a king by force, withdrew again to the mountain himself. Jesus doesn't want to be the kind of king that they're gonna force him to be. You see, the crowd would have had in mind the sort of king that they expected God would send, a king who is like other kings, a king who is like the kings from the Old Testament, a strong, this-worldly sort of figure who would lead them in their strong, this-worldly agendas. But Jesus is certainly a king, but the type and manner of his kingship will be very different from what the crowds expected or even wanted. You see, their expectations, their familiarity, quote-unquote, familiarity with the stories, had in mind that Jesus was supposed to be a specific kind of figure, and Jesus in this moment is resisting to feed into these expectations because they don't actually understand what he's all about. The familiar stories, The familiar events, these contributed to shaping the crowd's expectation of Jesus. They dictated how they would understand Jesus and what Jesus was supposed to do in the world. In their minds, Jesus was here to do something for us, and he did do something for us. And we want him to do it again and again. We want the bread. We want the bread. We want the bread. But here's the big problem is that the feeding of the 5,000 was a sign. A sign isn't a destination. It isn't an end in itself. Rather, a sign helps to reveal something to us. You see, Jesus' charge against the crowds is that the sign of the feeding is meant to lead you to true food, the food the Son of Man will give, the food which Jesus himself is. What matters is not just what Jesus can do for you, what matters is who Jesus is. The sign was directing the people's attention to the identity of the one who was giving them the food, but they were just obsessed with the food itself. And only in encountering who Jesus truly is are we able to experience what Jesus can actually do for us, what he wants to do for us. For some of you, church is a very familiar place you know the stories you can name the books of the bible you might even have a few verses memorized you might have your favorite stories you might have your favorite characters in the scriptures you might even know what it's like to experience a powerful sermon that brings you to tears I love those moments they happen like once a year right but I try every week trust me You know what it is to be in a meaningful small group or Bible study where you really connect with people in a a really profound way. Perhaps you even know what it was like to meet Jesus or God as a teenager at camp and have this powerful experience where you just felt like something was different after that week. Some of you might even have your favorite songs, the songs that move you, that sort of bring to the forefront of your minds the beauty of what you believe and the beauty of Jesus and God. You've seen God show up, some of you, in our particular kind of prayer gathering. When you prayed in this way with these people, this is the thing that God did. You have encountered something powerful in all of these practices that you're familiar with. And the great temptation as Christian people is that these experiences present to us a constant longing to try and recreate or re-experience them all over again. And so we might criticize the sermon that just didn't, wasn't quite powerful. You we weren't really on par this morning, pastor. Or, or maybe we get frustrated with the kind of music that we're singing because it just doesn't hit us the same way. We might cease to pray when it doesn't seem to move in the same way that it did before or cause the right things to happen. And when we do this, we're like that crowd before Jesus, asking him to do that sign over and over and over again. We're asking him to show up in the same way that he did before, over and over and over again Do something for us, do something for us in just the same way that we experienced you before because that was powerful and we want that thing. But church, those experiences, they were only ever signs. They were only ever signs that were meant to lead you to where true food is found to lead you to the thing that can ultimately satisfy your cravings and your longings for something more. You will never, ever hear me be satisfied in my preaching. You will never, ever be satisfied in a style of music or in a week-long retreat or a particular prayer gathering. You will only ever be satisfied when you realize all of that stuff has been pointing you to Jesus himself. They're just signs, directing our attention to the one in whom we are satisfied in relationship with, that is God himself. Several weeks ago, Paige and I were, um, we went to a funeral of a dear friend of ours, really close family friend actually, who passed away from uh, complications with ALS. And she was fairly young, Their uh, four kids were part of our church in Santa Barbara. Uh, Three of them had gone through our youth ministry, which was pretty awesome, and we love their family and those kids. And her name was Trish, and Trish was a really unique person. Um, Sometimes, yeah, you know, when you know somebody, the things that people say about them, you're like, I don't know if they're like being just kind of pouring it on or whatever, but Trish, I was telling Paige, she was extraordinary. She was like the most ordinary, she lived the most ordinary life in the most extraordinary way. It was incredible. And as we had gathered at that funeral those weeks ago, we had a number of people that came and shared about her life and there was this theme that kept emerging that I realized like, oh, I didn't know that that I wasn't special in that. I didn't realize she was doing that with everybody that she knew in her life was that Trish would often give people gifts all of the time like all of the time, and they were never good quality gifts. They are always these sort of like trinket, here's, you know, like a key ring, or here's something, you know, that I just grabbed on my way out of the grocery store. She was constantly giving people gifts, but they were never nice gifts. In fact, I brought one of the gifts that they gave to us when we had Levi here. I don't know if I'll set it there, but it's this like little people parking lot, and it's dirty and used it was from her kids when they used it when they were kids and Levi is sort of marginally interested in playing with it although he gets a little bit more excited but it's just like it's not impressive as a gift in itself you know Levi gets all sorts of brand new things he's the only grandchild on both sides of the family we got brand new everything we got way too many toys if you want some of our toys just come and pick them up we love to (laughs) donate them to you but Trish would give use things like this to people and to friends. And we all kind of laughed about it at her funeral. And her brother went up and was sharing and reflecting about her life a little bit. And he was remarking how, you know, Trish would give gifts all the time. She would send Christmas gifts in, like, early November to make sure they got there on time. And he made mention the gifts were never impressive, like, in themselves. But he said this. The gift was only a bridge to the actual gift, which was relationship. The gift was only a bridge to the actual gift, which was a relationship with her. Church, when we're talking about the signs that Jesus does in our community and in the world and in the scriptures, they're only a bridge to the actual gift of relationship with him. And we have to free ourselves and rid ourselves of these expectations of what God and Jesus ought to do in the world and bask in the reality that when he does do something, it reminds us that God is for us and is in relationship with us. We, as a church, need to see Jesus as he actually is ridding ourselves of the expectations that have come with our familiarity with him and just believe in him and just pursue him. And when we do, we will be satisfied. It'd be amazing how much better preaching I would have if you just, right? Or how much better our church life would be or how much better everything would be if we realized it was just directing our attention to Jesus. For others of us here this morning, Church maybe is an unfamiliar place with unfamiliar experiences. Know this if that is you this morning. Jesus is the one in whom we believe. Jesus is the one in whom you can be satisfied in your life by having a relationship with him. Jesus and the relationship with him will satisfy all of your heart's longings and cravings in this world. He is the bread of life. This is why Jesus says, for on him, for on Jesus, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. God the Father, the creator of the universe, your creator has set on Jesus his seal of approval and it's in relationship with him that we can know God and be in union with God. Jesus' church is the bread of life and we have to receive him as he is not as we think we, he ought to be. As we go through this teaching series, church, let us remain grounded in knowing that Jesus is the bread of life, that Jesus, not our expectations, is the one in whom we believe. Amen? Let's pray. Father, forgive us for all the times when we miss Jesus because of our expectations. We ask, Lord, that we would have eyes to see him clearly, that we would have the courage and the strength to receive him as he is, and in so doing, experience the satisfaction that comes in knowing him. Jesus, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us and that as we grow and pursue relationship with you, we would experience the transforming work that you actually want to do in our lives and in the world. Jesus, we are your body, and we want to live into that reality faithfully in the way that you actually want us to be. And so, give us a clarity of thought and heart to pursue you and your ways and your laws and your commands only. Rid us of our expectations, we pray. And it's your name, Jesus, that we pray, amen. Church, receive this blessing. As you go from this place, may you discover the satisfaction, joy, and fulfillment of knowing Jesus as the bread of life. May he sustain you this week, and may you be content. Go in his peace, amen.